Well, good morning, Sailorville. Well, that was a great story, Kate's, wasn't it? You'll get a chance to express that to her uh, at the end of our time here. And thanks to those of you who came, family and friends, uh, to hear her testimony. Praise God. If you brought a copy of God's Word with you this morning, I would invite you to find Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, as we talk about the sovereignty of God and the song of the saint. We are taking our time to go through the Word of God in the book of Romans. And if you are visiting with us today, uh, we are in the middle of, of one of the harder if not, in some cases, uh, in some people's minds, the most difficult passage in all of the Bible. And, and in reality, this passage of Scripture gives great exaltation to God, and it does put us in our place, that is for sure. Uh, but that's a good place to be, isn't it, in our place, where God wants you to be? And so, uh, with that in mind, we're going to be reading, we're going to be looking at the gut of this passage today, and then we'll conclude our study of this chapter uh, next week. But uh, beginning in verse 6 is where we left off. Here's what it says. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are, the, are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and say Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, watch this, and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call. She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Strong words, indeed. The story is told of a man who walked into a church, visiting for the very first time, walked into a church in the middle of a huge church fight over the sovereignty of God in election and human free will. I go like this and this because one side of the church had literally lined up on one side, those who believed in election, the sovereignty of God in election. The other side of the church had lined up on the other side, those who believed in human free will, and they were in just yelling back and forth. The guy walks in on the side of those who believed in the sovereignty of God in election. And they looked at him and they said, how did you get here? He said, I came here of my own free will. And they forced him to go to the other side. <laughs> he gets over to the other side and they say, and how'd you get here? He said, well, I was forced to come here. And they kicked him out of the church. When the great prime minister in World War II of Great Britain, Winston Churchill, addressed his people in regards to Russia, the Soviet Union, he despised that empire, and yet he realized he was going to have to ally with them in order to beat the Nazis. He described the Soviet Union with a, a brain teaser for the, for the ages. He called the Soviet Union a riddle wrapped 
in a mystery inside of an enigma. Understanding God's sovereignty and yet our responsibility to both believe and receive him as well as to passionately proclaim his gospel to the nations. Why he saves some and not others and why he would save me or why he would save you personally is truly a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside of an enigma. How can God love the world when Christ's death and resurrection applies only to the elect? How does God wish for men to turn to him whom he has not chosen? Why are men so urgently employed to carry out his plan in preaching the gospel to the nations, to those who, you know, he's already chosen, they're going to be saved anyway? These are inscrutable questions, and you can't unscrew the inscrutable. Only God can do that. It's a little bit like walking up to a house with a real steep pitch roof, okay? So you walk up and you see the, the, the roof, and on, on the roof it says, whosoever will. You think about that, and you think of all the invitations of Scripture, you think of the gospel, you think of our responsibility to place our faith in Jesus. You go around the other side, and on that pitch roof it says, only the elect. And so you contemplate that. You say, okay, well, that means God's in charge. And he wouldn't be God if he wasn't in charge. You analyze, you think about that for a while. And then you try to put that together by going over the other side and you're looking at, uh, you know, whosoever will. And you think about that and you think about the elect. You can't, you really can't study the one with the other. You almost have to analyze each one of them separate of one another. You try back and forth. You run back and forth. You can only see the one but not the other. They never seem to come together. They don't come together. Unless, of course, you're looking at it from above, and then you can see them both. And that's God's perspective, not yours, not mine. God is able to unscrew the inscrutable, and someday he'll do it just right. I'm going to do my best right now. It'll be a really, really poor job, I guarantee you that right now. But I'm just going to articulate the scripture the best I know how. Bruce Demarest, the great theologian, said that we should never be alarmed when we encounter mystery with God. Whenever God and man meet, there is mystery. So I say all that to say to you, first of all, I want all of you to know as we get into this text in earnest this morning, that I love you. I really, really do. And there is nothing in my soul that would ever purposely confuse, discourage, or anger you. But I love God more than I love you. And because his word is the last word on any discussion or debate, I will always choose his word over pleasing anyone else's whim or wit, or personal take or concern. Secondly, because I am doing the best I can to understand and interpret God's word to you on this hard subject of foreknowledge and election and predestination, 
I have no illusions to the fact that I could be corrected when I get to heaven, okay? I might be wrong in some facet. In some, I don't think I am, but I could be wrong. I'm, I'm conceding that right now, okay? So you say, why are you telling this? Why are you apologizing beforehand? Because I want the love of the brethren to continue. I want to keep getting along, okay? So at the end of the day, if you disagree with me, let's covenant right now to love one another anyway, amen? I feel better now. Now let me review what we've said up till now, which really started in chapter 8 when God put this, when God, he, remember that capsulized sermons, God, God's chain, the chain of events in salvation that God you know, just sews them all together. Remember, it says that God, whom God foreknew, means to forelove, set his affection on beforehand. Those whom God foreknew, he also predestined. Those he predestined, these he also called. Those he called, these he also justified. Those he justified, these he also glorified. Past tense, past tense, past tense, past tense. The whole point is this. God's plan is intact from front to finish. It's not open-ended. What God starts, he does finish. Secondly, God's sovereignty has never negated human responsibility. So get that off right now. We're not, we're, not, we're not just little robots down here. God's sovereignty, his absolute control, does not negate our responsibility to respond to him. That's the reason why Romans chapter 9 will lead into Romans chapter 10, where you have all kinds of human responsibility to believe on the Lord Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and, and you know, understand these things and place your faith. Receive his righteousness. And chapter 10 talks about taking the gospel to the whole world. How will they hear unless somebody is sent? And the last thing we said last week was personal zeal. And Kate's testimony attests to this. Personal zeal, including sincerity and genuine excitement, does not equate to salvation. Just because you had some heebie-jeebie in some service doesn't make you saved. Just because you cried while Paul led in some great song doesn't make you a Christian. Just because you were greatly convicted even by a message that you heard does not save you. You must make a commitment to Jesus Christ. Just as Kate was moved one day, actually went forward. I remember she was weeping her eyes out right over here. But she didn't get saved for two more days. When her head and her heart came together, she placed her faith in Jesus. Now, if you recall, that's those of you who've been with us, in the earlier chapters of Romans, the apostle puts us on trial. It's really kind of a courtroom scene. First, you have the pagan that's put on trial in Romans chapter 1. And and Paul calls the witness of creation against that pagan. That's declaring even the eternal sovereignty and Godhead to him in the order of the universe, etc. He then confronts the moralist, the, the, the goody two-shoes guy, and calls his conscience to bear witness against him. And then he calls the Jew, who are more accountable than anyone because they had the law of God personally handed to them. And they're found guilty. And then he calls all of us, all of humanity. So that Romans 3.19 says, All are found guilty of sin. There is none righteous, not even one. So that's 
the early part of Romans, God putting man on trial. Now in Romans chapter 9, the tables are turned. And man puts God on trial. And while in the earlier chapters of Romans, every one of us were put on trial and we were rightfully found guilty. God is never guilty of the allegations leveled against him in this chapter. And there's actually about three of them. Uh, They question the promises of his word. They question his character and his fairness. And they question his righteousness. And we'll get to that more next week. But the first thing I want to look at this morning is the question of the promises of God, his word. And Paul tells us right out of the chute in verse 6, his promises haven't failed. And he says it in so many words. He says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. Not everyone who has descended from Israel belonged to Israel. Not all are, are children of Abraham because they are offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. And what he is doing here is, is he's saying that the promises of God have not changed toward Israel. If you were with us uh, last week, we saw that in the first five verses, Israel has had this cavalcade of blessings given to them. The promises of God, the covenant, uh, uh, the worship. They've had the glory and the adoption. And yet they've been accursed. They're set aside. And, and they might be thinking, well, that means all the promises are just null and void. No, no, that's not the case. God has always operated on the basis of the heart. We talked about that last week. Well, he's chosen the nation of Israel. He saves individuals. Now, listen, let me just say this too as we get going in here. The goal of preaching or teaching difficult passages of Scripture, such as the one we're in on election and predestination, is not not to prove preconceived ideas or to follow the natural inclinations of our human wiring. Listen carefully to what I'm saying. For one thing, remember, our human wiring got all screwed up in the fall, right? In the Garden of Eden. Our sinful state of being will always exalt us, not God. We will always make us, not God, the final arbiter. We'll always make us, not God, the final decision maker when it comes to salvation. We love the idea of personal sovereignty. We love the idea of the freedom of the will. As if God, by the virtues of the cross, made everyone free to choose Jesus and just sort of sat back to see what would happen. That's ludicrous. That's crazy stuff. It's certainly not biblical. That's not a God in control. And here Paul reminds his readers that while God chose Israel as a nation from the start, he was selecting individuals. Isaac's brother Ishmael, remember him? Was every bit Abraham's son as Isaac was. But he was not the son of promise. Isaac was the son of promise. And as for Isaac's twins... Jacob and Esau, you think about their, they had the same circumstances, same parents. You know, they were literally roomies in the same womb. 
But Jacob was the son of promise, not Esau. And God chose him before he was ever born, before he ever did. And the scripture says that, verse 11, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that the purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call. So here you have God choosing. Now, some of you are probably thinking, well, that's because, see, God, um, you know, he saw in the future, you know, he could see, you know, way in eternity back. He could see Jacob. He knew, what, he knew what Jacob's life would be like. And so he chose him on that basis. And my response would be, have you studied Jacob's life? I mean, I get it. Esau was definitely a man of the flesh. He's the one, he's the son who sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. But have you studied Jacob? I mean, this guy was conniving. I mean, he doesn't exactly rock your spiritual world. He was a conniver, self-driven, get-it-done-by-your-own-wits kind of guy, agreeing to a deceptive plot with his mother running away like a coward, tasted his own medicine at the hands of his future father-in-law, married not one but two women. You remember that? And then he, he got involved in this, some breeding process and, and did some, got, got some cockamamie planned, but God somehow blessed it. He becomes filthy rich, runs away with his wives and has all kinds of kids. And in the end, as a father, he favors one son above all the rest. Great example. It reminds me of what Spurgeon once said. He said, I'm glad God chose me before I was born because he would never have chosen me after I was born. Here is the point. God foreknew all of Jacob's life. He saw all that. He knew exactly what Jacob would be like. So you say, well, so it's not about what Jacob deserved? No. It's like that line in that great Western spiritual epic with Clint Eastwood, Unforgiven, standing over Gene Hackman, laying in a pool of blood at the end of the movie. The line of the, one of the line of all lines in all movies. Hackman's looking up. He's dying, watching it, looking at the end of a barrel, and he says to Eastwood, he says, I don't deserve this. To which Eastwood replies, deserving's got nothing to do with it. I'm here to tell you, deserving's got nothing to do with it. Not when it comes to your salvation anyway. He says in verse 13, and this is, this is the one that we get hung up on. It's a quote from Malachi. He says, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That's troublesome, isn't it? Just admit it. It is, right? Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, like the woman that came to the great preacher one day and says, I don't get this. Esau I I hated. How can God say such a thing? To which he said, "I, I know I'm troubled by that verse too, man, but it's not Esau I hated that shocks me it's the fact that Jacob I loved it's just a whole it's our whole culture especially the american culture we have this 
charity-based culture. We feel like we all deserve something. We got, we got it coming to us. But if we would be more biblically minded, we would see that we don't deserve anything. And we should fall on our faces and worship before God who would choose any of us, let alone many of us. Jacob have I loved. Esau have I hated. This is a troublesome word, is it not? On the subject of God hating someone, we we have to conclude that this is a holy hatred. The word hatred means exactly that. There have been versions of the Bible that have tried to soften this thing. I don't know why. The wording doesn't allow you to soften it. But here's, this might help you out. If God, if God's love is holy, if his mercy is holy, if his righteousness is holy, is his jealousy holy? Yes, it is. God is holy, jealous. Is yours? Uh, No. Can't we conclude that his hatred is perfectly holy? Hatred? Here's the problem with hatred with you and me. When, when we hate someone, when, if I hate somebody, I betray my, I'm betraying my inability to do anything about it short of being thrown in prison, right? That's because my hatred is usually fraught, it's usually filled, it's usually packed with all kinds of feeling. I can't control it. But God's hatred is a holy hatred. It's not messed up with feelings. He certainly isn't incapable. If he hates somebody, he can squash them right now, right? Aren't you glad that he didn't squash you when you were on the other side of the cross? And some of you are there now. Thank God for his patience in your life. But the idea in love, Jacob have I loved, whenever the Bible speaks of God loving anyone, it's, it's talking about his covenant love. Like in Deuteronomy, I'll just go there real quick. I alluded to it in the first service, but I got a little more time in the second. Here's what it says in Deuteronomy 7. This is powerful stuff. It says, for you are a people holy to the Lord. He's talking to Israel. Holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It is not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. You say, God, did he just say, I chose to love you because I chose to love you? Yes, that's exactly what he said. Because anything else would mean that there was something intrinsic within the people to love. This is, this is, what, this is what makes God's love so great. He loves us in spite of the fact there is nothing in you, there is nothing in me to love. So when he talks about love, Jacob I love, he's talking about his covenant love, his loyalty towards Jacob. Esau I have hated Again, it's a holy hatred. God doesn't say, I, I love Jacob and Esau. Well, I kind of like him, but not really that much. No, he, he has 
perfectly holy hatred. It's not connected to a raging, I can't do anything about it, feelings, but rather it's just conveying the fact that he has not been chosen of God. Either way, God's word and his promises have never failed, nor, nor will they ever fail. Even though they are putting God on trial to say that. The second thing they call into question with God in this chapter is his character. They're questioning his fairness. And this is important for us in our culture. We all, we love that term fairness. We feel like everybody, you know, everybody's a winner. What? And so, Paul is just sort of following the logic of what some people will think in lieu of this. Verse 14, what, what shall we say then? Is there... I think we have this on, up there for you. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? We just sang a song about that. What's the answer? No, by no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, remember that, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and hardens whomever he wills. Whenever we, we contemplate God's greater plan of salvation, it's wrong to start with fairness because fairness implies that I deserve some benefit from God. And, and Paul touches on this in verse 19. Look down in verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Wow. And so Paul touches on this and he basically concludes, who are you to answer back to God? And if we would have a bigger picture of God in our minds, of who he is, how holy, how unapproachable he is, apart from his son, we would agree with this statement. Jerry Bridges, in writing profound words on holiness, writes this, and I quote, he says, if God is perfectly holy, we can be confident that his actions toward us are always perfect and just. We're often tempted to question God's actions and complain that he is unfair in his treatment of us. This is the devil's lie. The same thing he essentially told Eve. God is being unfair to you. Remember, that's what he said to Eve in Genesis 3. He concludes, but it is impossible in the very nature of God that he should ever be unfair because he is holy all his actions are holy, unquote. Look at verse 15 again. He says to Moses, I, have, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. John Piper who wrote the words to the hymn we just sang, wrote a dissertation, really. It wasn't a dissertation, might as well have been. It's just a huge work on Romans chapter 9. 
called the justification of God. And are you ready for this? On verse 15, he spends 240 pages on verse 15. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And so I'm going to just reduce this thing to what Piper concludes. He concluded, now listen to this, he concluded that God's freedom in all aspects of choices is is an essential aspect of his glory. You see, God cannot be God as we know him if his judgments and his decisions that he makes are predicated on something I will or will not do in the future. Let me say that to you again. It's worth drinking in. I'm just summarizing what I, what I understand this text to say. God cannot be God as we know him. If the judgments and the decisions he makes are predicated on something we will or will not do. If that were the case, that is, if all God's decisions and all of his judgments were predicated on something that I will or will not do in the future, that then puts outside external influence on God. This is the ultimate failure of Arminianism. Arminianism, seeing foreknowledge, remember that's sort of our foundational thing here that we talked about weeks ago. Arminianism, seeing foreknowledge as simply God seeing beforehand the things, uh, you know, decisions man will make and choosing men on and predestining, predestinating them on the basis, on that basis of what they're going to do is actually placing outside influence on God, which is an affront to his holiness and his glory. By the way, in verse 15, when he says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion, do you know where that's found? Do you know where that discussion took place? You don't need to go there, but you might on your own. It's in Exodus 33. This is one of those passages of Scripture. I mean, you just enter into Exodus 33, you feel like you're on holy ground. As none other in Scripture. Exodus 33 is after Moses has gone up on the mountain and got the Ten Commandments. He comes back down and what does he discover? He discovers God's people involved in a raging religious orgy. Complete nakedness, revelry everywhere, anything that you can imagine in your wicked mind's eye is what he saw. Don't go there. That's why he took those commandments and threw them down because of the disgust and the abhorrence of the whole thing. He goes back up and begins to plead with God to have mercy upon the people of Israel. And in this passage of Scripture in Exodus 33, he has a face-to-face conversation with the angel of the Lord who is none other than Jesus Christ pre-incarnate. And they talk while the rest of the people are sort of 
hanging around in reverence. And as he, began, as he pleads for mercy, Moses asked for more, a lot more, too much more. He asked Jesus to show him his full glory. Do you remember that? In essence, Jesus says to him, he says, look, you can't see all of my glory. Are you be vaporized? But here's what I'll do to accommodate you. He sticks Moses into the crevice of a rock on the mountain, puts his hand over the crevice, and then goes by and shows Moses the trailing parts of his glory. That's it. And I'm pretty sure that when Moses got done with that experience, he thought, I will never ask that again. Why do I share that with you? Because that is the context of this quotation. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. God's choosing is done so within the unapproachable glory of his holiness. And if we would understand that, we would understand why Paul says, who are you to talk back to God? Instead, we should bow in reverence and love and full acceptance of what the Scripture, the Word of God says to us. And like the old hymn has it, have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. Ray Stedman has powerfully written that sovereignty means, quote, the right to do what you will without giving an answer or reason to anybody, unquote. And if you think about it, God must be that kind of being or he is no God at all. And in the end, really the question, who's God? Are you God? Am I God? Or is God God? From the moment that sin entered into the world and really just before the moment it entered into the world, Satan, as he tricked Eve as he has been attempting to trick us to the present hour, he continues to try to deceive the minds of men into thinking that we can be like God. We can be personal sovereigns. That we're the final answer. We make the final call. We are saved because we chose to be saved. And yet, in the very face of all of that, you have the words of the Lord Jesus himself who says to his disciples, You did not choose me. What? What? I chose you. And when you look at verse 16, it says, So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Did you you hear what I just read? So then... In the light of, he'll give mercy to whom he he gives mercy. He'll give compassion to whom he gives compassion. So then, it does not depend on human will or exertion. I'm sorry, but do you read any free will in that verse? Do you remember what we showed you a couple weeks ago in James 1? Where James reminds us that it is of his own will that he brought us forth by the word of truth. Not your will, by God's will. That's why I have often said that I don't believe in free will. I believe in freed up will. 
Do your wills get involved? Absolutely, because God frees them up by the Spirit of God who we looked at in Romans chapter 8. You say, well, that's pretty humbling. Yeah, that's the point. That's the whole point of this passage. And he gives a couple of illustrations to support the fact that God does not need to ask your permission or mine to do what he does. Pharaoh and then the potter and the clay. Actually, the subject is Pharaoh, and Paul himself uses the potter and the clay as an illustration of what God was doing with Pharaoh in order to bring greater glory to himself. Verse 17 and 18, where it says, But the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So, when, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and hardens whoever he wills. Listen, God is all about making his name and his fame great. And he told Pharaoh through Moses as much. This verse used to trouble me because you have here in verse 17, you have here, I mean, verse 18, that God hardens whoever, whoever he wills. And I used to think, Paul, why don't, you, why don't you tell the readers in this book of Romans what really took place back there? Remember the plagues? Remember the 10 plagues? I mean, they were just awesome. And every time Moses would go back and talk to Pharaoh, Pharaoh would harden his heart. Remember that? And then he'd kind of forget about it, and he'd harden his heart, and then he'd say he's sorry, and then he'd let him. And then, through 10 plagues, Pharaoh hardened his heart, hardened his heart, hardened his heart, hardened his heart. Bang! God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And I used to think, Paul, why don't you tell us, remind us of that? That's really cool because that shows that God, while he did harden Pharaoh's heart, it was only after Pharaoh had hardened his own heart over and over and over again. And then I realized that wasn't, that wasn't Paul's point. Paul was not, he, he wasn't, that wasn't his point in all of this. His point was not that God waits for us to respond to him and that only after we've hardened our heart does he step in. The point is that God is to be adored for who he is, plain and simple. And he'll do whatever he wants to do. That's exactly what Psalm 115 says. Our God is in heaven and he does whatever he pleases. Have you ever read that? So imagine, if you will, the story about the ten plagues. The story without the ten plagues. The story without the pillar of fire. The story without the pillar of the cloud. The story without the wall of fire that separated the Jews from the Egyptians that were chasing them. The story without the waters of the Red Sea parting and the, the ground being dry and the, and the Israelis going across. None, none of that happened. And, and the story about the, the pillar that blocked the Egyptians from getting to the Jews before they got across. You don't, you don't need to have a Pillar there if nobody's chasing you. It's not there. This, this a story without Moses collapsing the water upon calling upon God and drowning all of the Egyptians. None of that is there. Instead, the story is Moses who comes to Pharaoh and instead he doesn't say, let my people go. Instead he says, oh, 
you know, something like, oh, great Pharaoh, great ruler of Egypt and king of all the world. Most powerful man, I'm Moses, I'm just a nobody. And um, I'm a Jew. Anyway, I was just kind of wondering, our people have been here for like 400 years as slaves. And, you know, they served you a long time. Do you mind if they would just, we could just go and go back to where we used to be and sort of set up our home there? Do you mind that we worship our God there too? Is that okay with you? And Pharaoh, realizing the impeccable logic of Moses, is suddenly overwhelmed with gratitude for all the Jews have done to bless the Egyptians for 400 plus years. He says, absolutely, I'm sorry I didn't think about this before now. I've kept you longer than I should. Listen, take everything you want, just go. Everything you need for the journey. But that's not what happened. All of those awesome things happened. Why? So that Cecil B. DeMille could do his movie? Here's why. Verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this purpose I raise you up, that I might show my power in you. Verse 22. We'll get to this more in earnest next time. What if God desired to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy he has prepared beforehand for glory. That's why God did it. So that he might say to us, I will be adored and not just analyzed. I will be worshipped for who I am. God over all. And so I want my desire as we go through this passage, we wrap it up here with these words. I want to just create a song in your mind and in your heart. And ask you to make several commitments. I'll put those commitments up here on the board in a moment. And if you're a part of Sailorville in any way, shape, or form, you'll get an email in your inbox in the next 20 minutes probably. So you don't need to write it all down. I just want you to think about it. The song of the saint to the sovereignty of God in this passage of Scripture. There are four things and I'll add a few more next week. Here they are. Here are the commitments I I beg you to make before the living God. One, I will magnify you, Lord, for your wisdom, though it is often beyond my comprehension. Can you agree with that? And will you magnify him? Secondly, I will praise you, Lord, not for my choice of you, but for your choice of me. Doesn't that seem to be the logical thing to come out of this? Here's a third commitment and song that could take place in your heart. I will marvel at you, Lord. Not because you didn't love another, but because you love me. And finally, for those of you who have yet to place your faith in Jesus Christ, you're, you're here, you're still an outsider looking in. Here's what you should do. I will trust you, Lord, for your salvation. For that is what you've called me to do. 
God doesn't call you to try to get into his head and figure out why he chooses one and not, not another. That's his business. Your job is to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Your job is to respond to God. Your job is to say, I agree with God that I'm a sinner, that I'm guilty, that he is exonerated, that he is glorious, that he is great, that he has sent his son for me, that Jesus died for me and rose again, and I will believe him, I will receive him, I will, I will trust him as my Lord and Savior. That's what you've called me to do. That's your job. And if you've done so, rejoice and, and revel, magnify the Lord for his wisdom. Praise him for his choice. Marvel that, not over somebody he passed over, but the fact that he passed upon you. And love him back. And listen to God say to your heart, I will be adored and not just analyzed. And you'll have a song in your heart. And that's my prayer for you. If you're visiting with us today, first time you've ever been here, we're thankful for you. We're glad you're here. This is a hard message to come in on. Oh, well. (laughs) That remind me, Glenn Buxton was the lead guitarist for Alice Cooper. We led him to Christ. You can look him up on the internet. I'm sure some of you will do it. Not yet, please. We led him to Christ in Clarion, Iowa, where he lived before he died. He's buried just a stone's throw from my first wife. He was 49 years old. He looked like he was 69. Caught a cold, got pneumonia, and died three days later. And, uh, but he was a funny guy, brilliant guy. He wrote schools out. You know, great, great lyrics there. And uh, whenever something happened that you can do anything about, he used to say, like they say in prison, Oh, well. <laughs> Got to have a weird sense of humor to appreciate that. Anyway, um, oh, well. We preach through the Bible, and we don't make any apologies. It's the way it goes. And, um, but, you know, like I said earlier, God help me if I'm, I'm wrong on something here. God help me and forgive me. If uh, you're visiting, though, with us, we'd like to know who you are. And you got, that, you got a bulletin. There's an insert in the bulletin. Uh, even right now, while we pray, you can do this. While I'm praying, I'm going to ask you to write your name. Just, just put the information on that because we're going to take up an offering. I want you to put that in the, uh, in the offering plate so we can get back with you and express our appreciation for you being here. Normally, at the end of the service, I ask all of you to participate, write something down. God challenge Not going to do that today, so just chill out. But you're going to get this in your inbox, and I want you to meditate on it, okay, as a form of worship so that your song might be to God for his sovereignty. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for the song of the saint to the sovereignty of you. And Lord, we do thank you for who you are. And uh, forgive us for ever putting you on trial in any way, shape, or form. Help us, Lord, to magnify you for your wisdom, even though it's beyond our comprehension.
Help us to praise you for your choice that you would even consider us. Help us not to get hung up on who you pass over because that's not our business anyway, but that you would even consider us. And then I pray for those who have not trusted you, Lord Jesus, that they may have heard the testimony of Kate, moved by it like she was, and go beyond being moved, putting the mind and the heart together and place their faith in Jesus. That's what you've called us to do. We're glad to be able to give, and we're going to do that here in a moment, Lord, but we pray that you will do a great work in our hearts as we do. We ask in Christ's name.